with that, let's turn our attention to God's Word this morning as we continue in our series that we've entitled Abraham and All in Life. And we have been learning about the life and times of Abraham. God would call this man out of total obscurity in northern Iraq and and, and have a, a encounter with Abraham. And in that encounter with Abraham, not because of anything Abraham does, but because of the goodness and grace of God, God says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you great. And this man who nobody really knew outside of his own hometown would be Come one of the uh, greatest men of all of human history. We said there are three religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity that look to this man as uh, the one who started the faith and, and was a great model. And we as Christians know and recognize that the promises of God are seen in the life of Abraham. And probably the most precious promise of all is that it's through the seed of Abraham That not only would he have a son in his old age named Isaac, but it is through that seed that there would be another birth that would take place, that would take the breath away from the world, and that is the birth of Jesus Christ. You see, when Matthew opens up the New Testament, he makes the connection of the greatest individual to ever live, the greatest one that we long to praise and worship, Jesus Christ. He makes that connection of Jesus Christ back to that Jesus is a descendant and of the seed of Abraham. And so we have before us, yes, a man who was faulty and frailed in many ways, who had a lot of mistakes along the way, but we celebrate and we seek to model our own lives after this man who by the grace and goodness of God would do awesome things and would see at the end of his life that God is a promise keeper, that God is the faithful one. Now, we've been articulating, and we need to do this again and again, that we cannot make one-to-one correlations from Abraham's life to uh, the here and now, especially when it comes to something like All In and the initiative that we're a part of. But there are some themes that we see in Abraham's life, what it means to follow God, what it means to trust God, what it means to prioritize God in our lives. That is true for us in the 21st century here in America as it was uh, in, in the days of the Old Testament in the land of Canaan. We learned last week the importance of what it means to serve God with all of our heart and to serve the communities around us by going before God on their behalf as Abraham did for the city and the people of Sodom. Well, this morning we come to Genesis 21. And if you want to follow along, you can turn in your all-in booklet to page 58 where you can take some uh, notes there to uh, remind yourself of some of the truths that we come across. And this morning in Genesis 21, we come to what is the first of a couple pinnacles or climaxes in this story. In Genesis 21, we come to the moment that we've been waiting for. For now 25 years, Abraham and Sarah have been waiting and waiting and waiting upon this promise of having a child. You see, when Jesus, I'm sorry, when God comes to Abraham and speaks to Abraham, he says in one of the promises, you're going to have a son. Well, the problem was when Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans, which again is northern Iraq, and makes his trek westward to Canaan. We learn in Genesis 12 
that upon the calling of God, Sarah has been barren for a long time. They've never had kids, and they've come to the conclusion that she will never be able to have a child. And for 25 years, they waited. And with every day, in fact, the the amount of time they waited was 9,125 days, add or subtract a few. That is the amount of days that they would wait. And with each passing day, no child would come. Hope would be lost more and more. And maybe this morning you're holding on to a promise of God. Maybe this morning God has uniquely spoken to you through his word or through circumstances and you're waiting on a promise. You've been praying about something for for so long. And with each passing day, your hope begins to erode more and more. Is God going to come through? Is God going to do the things he said? As believers, we too are in a season of waiting. God has promised us that he's gone to prepare a place for us. And if he's gone to prepare a place for us, John 14 says, that he'll come back and take us to be with him so that we will be with him forever. And for some of us, we look at the world, we deal with the circumstances of life, and we're saying, God, it's been a long time. 2,000 years, Lord, you said you were coming soon. And we're beginning to realize that, yes, a day to you is like a 1,000 years to us. But Lord, are your promises true? Are you truly going to come back? Is there truly something after this life? You see, when we find ourselves waiting, we find ourselves beginning to doubt. And what God does in Genesis 21 is he gives us who are waiting on a promise of God here in the 21st century, he gives us something to hang our hope on. Genesis 21 is where we see the birth of the promised son, Isaac. After all those years of waiting, after all the turns, the ebbs and flows of of bad decisions and foolish thoughts, all those years and, and moments where Abraham and Sarah doubted the plans and provision of God. They now, with their friends and family, are gathered around this little one who is born to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. And the only thing that we see from Abraham and Sarah is that Sarah laughs. She laughs. The hilarity of how God works filled her heart. And we're going to learn in the story that Abraham throws a feast. He throws a party. Let's look to Genesis 21. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read Genesis 21. And then what we're going to do is set Genesis 21 to the side for a moment. And we're going to rewind and and see some of the things that we need to understand that make Genesis 21 such a celebration, such a time of joy. And hopefully, my prayer is that we'll be able to glean some great truths from it. So let's look at Genesis 21 this morning. Genesis 21, starting in verse 1. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. It's important if you underline in your Bible those four words, as he had said. God said he was going to do this, and he's done it. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time which God had spoken to him. 
Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. It means laughter. And we'll see why in a moment. When Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said that to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. Let's just take a moment and pray. Father God, we ask now that you would bless our time, bless the reading of your word. I pray now that we would glean great truths from it. Remind us who are waiting on your promises that you do what you say. You fulfill what you promise. And give us the ability to stay true to you, to walk blameless before you, we ask. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. There's something awesome about a party. One of the reasons why I love my job as a caterer is almost, the really the majority, almost all of the parties that are events I do are parties. They are sub- celebratory events where someone invites me to come and cook for their friends because they're enjoying some great news. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a wedding, you name it, uh, there are times of great celebration. And even as a caterer who's not there to do anything more than work, it is awesome to be a part of that celebratory moment. Parties are fun to be at. Last night, the church threw a party, and it was a great time of celebration, and and it was a time where all would enjoy that celebratory event. But there's something about celebrating when it comes to our relationship with God that we don't do a real good job at. You know, it's amazing. We don't have to teach people how to celebrate. It's an instinct that's a part of our lives. But when it comes to us as Christians and what it means to celebrate God and what it means to be filled with joy about what God is doing, far too many of us don't know how to do it. Even though joy and that spirit of celebration is a fruit of the spirit, it is one that we don't harvest in our lives very often. We're kind of like the Puritans of old, where it was said of the Puritans that they were haunted, they were haunted by the fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. Some of you are just getting that. Let me read that again to you. The Puritans, so maybe you're just Puritans and you can't laugh at anything. The Puritans were haunted by the fear that someone, somewhere, might be happy. Does that describe you this morning? the cynic in you, the discouraged part of you? Well, how can I be happy? I've got this circumstance or this, this going on. Billy Sunday, who was known for his celebrations, the evangelist, Billy Sunday said, if there is no joy in your religion, then you are in a leaking vessel and there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. The number one job of the Christian 
is out of gratitude to celebrate what God has done. We should be the happiest. We should be the most joy-filled. We should be the most celebratory people because we recognize that we in our lost state have been given new birth in Jesus Christ through the finished work of the cross of Calvary. And we have been brought into a relationship with the uh, omnipotent creator God who gives us everything we need to have a relationship with him that should fill our hearts with great joy. But what you're going to learn is, is that while Abraham and Sarah were filled with joy in Genesis 21, they weren't always filled with joy. In fact, the road to Genesis 21 is like many of the roads we find ourselves on today. And what we see in the life of Abraham and Sarah is they allowed some things to kill their joy, to kill their celebration. Let's remember in Genesis 12, God says, the God of the universe says to Abraham, I want to bless you. I want to bless you, not only in your life, but I want to bless you and your descendants where you will see and you will experience the grace and goodness of Almighty God. And Abraham, no doubt, was filled with celebration when he heard that and took big steps of faith. But likewise, we have been given that promise. Likewise, we have been given that great blessing. The Bible says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing under heaven. So why is it that Abraham in Genesis and us today aren't filled with the joy that we should be experiencing as believers? I'll write this down. It's my first point this morning. Uh, If we want to experience joy, if we want to experience celebrating God, then we've got to steer clear of some roadblocks. There were some roadblocks in Abraham and Sarah's life, and there's roadblocks in our life that keep us from experiencing the joy of the Lord, from allowing us to celebrate not just when baby Isaac is born, but each of the days that we have to walk and talk and experience God in each day. Well, what are some of these roadblocks? Let's look at Abraham and Sarah's life and we'll see some, probably some truth of how we have our joy robbed from us. The first, if you will, roadblock to us finding joy is frustration. Frustration. Remember in Genesis 12, here's what you're gonna have. You are going to have a son. Now Abraham and Sarah don't know how it's gonna come about. They're not quite sure of what it's gonna look like. But they've been given this promise that they're going to have a son. But I want you to notice that the text continues to tell us as we move forward that for a matter of years, no son comes. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 16 for a moment. Genesis 16. And in Genesis 16 verse 1 is probably one of the most frustrating verses in all of the Scripture. And it simply says this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had bore him no children. Now if we were to superimpose that to Genesis chapter 12, we would say something's wrong here. God said you're going to have a kid. Now years have passed and there's no kid. 
and there's seemingly no future of a kid because we're living month after month with no, 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 no. And so frustration begins to mount. Frustration is defined simply as the disappointment or the anger of something not going the way you expected it to. And so we experience frustration all the time. We experience frustration because the kids don't do what we expect of them, or our spouse doesn't do what we expect of them, or or the person driving next to us doesn't do what we expect of them. And so we're filled with frustration, and it moves from disappointment to anger. And Abraham and Sarah are are disappointed, and maybe even, and I don't want to put it there because the Scripture doesn't say it, but they could have maybe been angry with God. God... We expected something from you, and you haven't done it. Now, the reason why they expect it isn't because they put undue expectations on God, but it's because God had promised something, and in their thinking, it should have happened a long time ago, and it hadn't. And their frustration meter began to rise. And so instead of experiencing the abundant life that God wanted them to have, instead of experiencing the joy of walking with God and knowing and believing the promises of God, Abraham and Sarah are frustrated. Things aren't going the way they expected. Sadly, frustration doesn't just live in its own home. What it does is it invites other friends to be a part of it. Anger and bitterness, rage. And so some here this morning are at a place of frustration. Life isn't going the way you wanted it to. Your marriage isn't going the way you wanted it to. Your church isn't going the way you wanted to. Your relationships aren't going the way you wanted to. Your job's not going the way you wanted to. And frustration mounts and mounts and mounts. And what God says, I didn't come into your life so that you'd be frustrated. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I came to give you life and to give it in all abundance. And so God's desire for us as people is to be filled with joy and celebration, not frustration. Frustration's the first one. Notice the second one. The second roadblock that we run into is foolishness foolishness and and it comes on the heels of frustration stay in genesis 16 and what we see in the text is that out of frustration and this is so true of us we get frustrated about things and and because god's not moving god's not working or maybe that person that we're living life with they're not doing what we want or maybe the church isn't or maybe the job isn't going the way we want so we make this rash decision We make a foolish decision, not out of wisdom, but out of frustration. In Genesis 16, 2, we see a move of frustration that leads to foolishness. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, frustrated. Here's the foolishness. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me. That's frustration. It's not my fault, God. It's your fault. You've prevented me from bearing children. So go into my servant, that it may be that I may 
obtain children by her. And talk about foolishness. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Moses makes an incredible statement here. Because what we hear over and over again is God shows up and speaks to Abraham. God speaks, Abraham listens. God speaks, Abraham listens. God speaks, Abraham listens. That is what we're called to do. But out of frustration, Abraham listens to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, 10 years of no child, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into her, and she conceived. And when she saw that Sarah that she had conceived, she looked on uh, with contempt on her mistress, Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you, classic. I gave you my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And notice there's an exclamation point there. Sarah's yelling at her husband. They're living in a time of frustration. I get it, no doubt. To be in their shoes would have been difficult. But instead of waiting on God, instead of following God like Abraham and Sarah, we get frustrated and we start making decisions for ourselves. We move outside of, the God, of God's will and, and word and, and we begin to start rationalizing. Well, God, if you're not going to do it, then I'm going to take life into my own hands. God, if you're not going to give me that promotion, then maybe what it means is i got to get a little more cutthroat with my sales because doing it your way god isn't getting it there god you've given me desires and and wants and and you're not giving me the spouse that i need to enjoy those desires and wants so god i'm not going to do it anymore your way i'm just going to go and sleep around i'm going to go and do whatever the world tells me to do because that's where i'm going to find happiness we do it all the time we rationalize out of our frustration and it leads us to foolishness This foolish decision out of frustration will impact Abraham and Sarah's relationship, marriage relationship. I mean, my goodness, think of the dynamics, friends. Think of the dinnertime conversation. Think about the dynamics of now having uh, the connection that Abraham has with Hagar and now a son and the jealousy that comes. I mean, the family dynamics must have been a mess because of foolish decisions. It would impact their relationship with God. I believe with all my heart that Abraham and Sarah knew exactly what they were doing. They weren't mistaken. They knew this wasn't God's plan. But they made a decision to go against God and his word, and we do that. That is why frustration, while maybe not a sin, is such a slippery slope. So if you're living in a perpetual state of frustration, be careful because with frustration comes a lot of foolishness. But notice one more roadblock, and that's fear. Fear. What keeps us from celebrating God? What keeps us from enjoying God each and every day? Fear. Notice in a moment, turn in fact in your Bibles to Genesis 20. Genesis 20. 
Now, we've seen God, and the question that we have to ask is, why would Abraham fear? In Genesis 13, we see that Abraham has no fear because he knows God's with him, that he offers his nephew Lot the first choice of land. And Lot moves to the area of Sodom, and that creates a dilemma for Lot because Lot gets himself into an armed conflict with a bunch of kings around him, and he's taken hostage with all of his family. And Abram goes and takes a couple hundred men, and he goes and rescues Lot. And he's afraid because he knows that the people around him are stronger and more uh, numerous than he is. But he's had this victory and God says, don't be afraid. I'm with you in Genesis 15. You don't have to worry about them. I will be by your side. And then we see in Genesis uh, chapter 19 that Abraham gets a front row view of God's immense power in the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So this God who says, I'm going to protect you, Abraham, has shown and proven he is a mighty and powerful God. But what we're going to see is what Abraham does in Genesis 20, because Abram gets afraid again. In fact, what you're going to see in Genesis 20 is almost verbatim what happens in Genesis 12. Notice in the text, Genesis 20, verses 9 through 11. It says that, uh, well, before I read that, what's going on? In Genesis 20, verse 1, Abram journeys toward the territory of the Negev and, and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned. He's traveling. He's going about his, his land, and he's traveling about. And as he's traveling about, he sees that the countrymen of where he's traveling are more mighty and powerful than he is. And he gets afraid. Now, he had done this before in Genesis 12 when he journeyed down to Egypt. Remember, he's afraid. And the reason why he's afraid is that he knows that his wife is beautiful and that any of the men would want to take her as a wife. And if he's their husband, what he's going to do, what they're going to do is kill him and then take her to be their wife. And when Pharaoh does that, God protects Sarah and keeps Sarah from defilement. But think of the dynamics because what has, why would Pharaoh take Sarah? Because Abraham says, she's my sister. And they lied to everybody. We're brother and sister. You don't kill the brother of your new spouse. You make him join the family. He's not a threat. So here, They're journeying in Genesis 20, and they come into the area of Abimelech, who's a a great, uh, powerful man, and they do the same thing. We're brother and sister. Now, there is some truth to that because there are family connections between Abraham and Sarah, but that's not the whole truth. And out of fear, they share this story, and Abimelech says, Sarah, you're a beautiful woman. I want to take you as my wife. And he, he marries her. And upon taking her into his home, before she can be defiled, God speaks to him in a dream and says, don't do this thing. You're being lied to. Give the woman back, for it is Abraham's wife. 
And then he says, listen, the man you're going to give the wife back to, he's a prophet of mine. And I want you to have him pray for you, which is just really crazy. You've been lied to by the prophet, and God still uses the guy to pray for the one who's been swindled. And again, like in Egypt, disease and affliction comes upon the family until he does it. And why does he do it? Notice Genesis 20, verses 9 through 11. Abimelech asked the question, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought upon me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. This is an unbeliever speaking to a believer. And Abimelech said to Abram, what did you see that you did this thing? And Abram said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Fear can cause us to do a lot of dumb things. And we have fear because of circumstances, fear because of what's going on around us, fear of tomorrow, fear of of tribulation befalling us, fear because of the threats and, and the predatory nature of the people around us. We have all manner of reasons to be afraid. But God did not call us to have a spirit of fear and timidity, but of purpose and sound mind, Paul told Timothy. We are not called to be afraid because we serve a God who's afraid, listen to me, of nothing. He doesn't waste an ounce of his thinking, a moment of his time worried about anything. And if God is on our side, my friends, we then have nothing to worry about. It is because of God, not our circumstances, that we are to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, prayer and supplication, presenting our requests to God. Because we have a God who will supply. We have a God who will protect. We have a God who will meet us in our time of need. We have a God who will take care of all that concerns us today. So what roadblock this morning? is keeping you from experiencing the joy God wants you to have. Is it frustration? Is it foolishness? Is it fear? Now, how do we get from all of these mistakes to celebration in Genesis 21? Number one, God is a faithful God even when we're faithless. But God does something in Abraham's life. Notice the second thing. If we want to find joy in the journey, it means steering clear of roadblocks, but it also means staying close to God. Staying close to God. God is the one who continually initiates this ongoing relationship with Abraham. The Lord visits. The Lord visits. We see this again and again. The word of the Lord came to Abraham. This isn't Abraham looking, going, God, where are you? I can't find you. God is showing up and saying, Abraham, let's huddle up. Let's talk about this thing. I want you to be close to me. In fact, in Genesis 18, Abraham, I'm sorry, God shows up to Abraham's tent with a couple angels before they head to Sodom. And in the conversations, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 17 for a moment, in In your journey, as you and I 
live in a place of frustration and foolishness and fear. God's coming all the time. And he's saying, I want you to be close to me. I want you to walk with me. And so in Genesis 17, God shows up again. He shows up to Abraham and he says some things to Abraham. And there are two things that we learn if we are in a place of frustration, if we are in a place of foolishness or fear. God wants to do two things in our lives. Number one, he wants to redirect us. He wants to redirect us. Does he do it yelling and screaming? How dare you? I can't believe you did that with your maidservant. I can't believe Sarah would have had that thought. I can't believe you would have ruined the whole setup. He doesn't do that at all. In Genesis 17, we are told, starting in verses 1 through 8, that when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I that I may make my covenant between me and you, and you may multiply greatly. And then Abram fell on his faith and God, face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Abram means daddy. How ironic. He has no kids. Abraham means big daddy. Okay? For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. And I'll make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. And I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God is saying, listen to me, Abraham. You've lived long enough in frustration and fear and foolishness. Come, redirect your life, and come, follow me. Walk blameless with me. And Abraham does. And it's a truth for us this morning. Maybe you walked in with that fear and frustration and foolishness. Maybe your life is foolish decision after foolish decision. And you say, God doesn't want me. Here is a reminder of God saying, walk with me, let me bless you. And so God redirects him, and what does he do? He reminds him of the covenant. The only one who reminds you of your past is the devil. What God reminds you of is his promises in the future. And so don't listen to the devil, listen to God. God has great and precious promises for you. And if we will walk with him, if we will talk with him, if we will experience him on an everyday basis, those foolish decisions, that frustration in the past, that fear and cowering that we did before will be gone. And we will walk in freedom moving forward. But this redirection also means a recommitment. In Genesis 17, we have a, a new thing that's brought up, starting in verses 9 through 13. God says, okay, Abram, this is what we're going to do. I've got you back on the right track. You're, you're, you know I'm going to bless you. You're in agreement with that. Now I'm going to ask something of you. And he begins to explain circumcision. And Abraham says, what? You want me to do what? 
at 99 years of age, I'm going to have you do something. Not only you, but all your household. How would you like to have been the servant in that house, uh, master? Uh, what did your God say? There's something significant about circumcision. Now, this is the first speaking of circumcision in the Bible. And the practice of circumcision begins here in antiquity. And there's a reason. It's a commitment. It's a, it's a cutting off of a very personal part of the body, which will cause great pain and great sorrow and, and change you forever out of a heart to follow God. Now, in the New Testament, the gospel says that all of this has been fulfilled, and so circumcision does not hold the place it did in our lives as it did for Abraham. But I want you to notice the significance of the faith. We, we focus in on the pain of circumcision, the privacy of circumcision. But there's something even greater that makes what Abraham is going to do when he says, yes, God, even more significant. Remember that Abraham has been promised that God says from your own body you will conceive a child. I don't need to tell the people in the room how that works. And what Abraham is being asked to do is to address the part of his body that that promise is going to be fulfilled. Now, Abraham has never been a part of a circumcision before. He has no idea what that is going to do to his body, but he trusts God and says, God, even if it means I got to cut part of me away, even though that could possibly impact my ability to have kids in the future, I'm going to trust you. And here's the amazing thing. God was asking for a small part of him to be cut away. And while again, circumcision isn't the same for us today, God is asking the same of us. What small part of you is keeping you from following me? What part of you, that thing, that possession, that desire, that that, that, um, uh, plan in your life, that relationship in your life is more important to you than following me, God says. And Abraham does it. And he endures the pain. And he gives of a sacrifice because he wants to recommit his life to the Lord. Listen, recommitting your life to the Lord will always cost you something. That's what I love about this process of all in. Because it gives us an opportunity as a church to stop and say, Lord, what part of me am I unwilling to give that are keeping me from truly following you? What a grace that Abraham has given. A grace to be redirected. A grace to be recommitted to God. And it's the same grace that we have. We can have joy. We can have abundance in life that God has promised us. But we've got to follow him. We've got to walk blamelessly before him. We at times have to cut parts of us away so that we can more fully follow God. The final thing that we need to do, and this will be a short point, so take heart, is we need to seek God's course and timing. 
And so we get to Genesis 21, and the baby's born. The baby's born after great frustration, after great fear, after great foolishness. Though they were utterly faithless, God was utterly faithful. And that is true for you this morning. Like your pastor, you have fallen greatly because of your sin and foolishness. But God, out of his immense love for us, keeps his promises. And he reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And with Paul's permission... Let me change his list, a litany of things that doesn't separate us. And for our purposes, nothing. Can frustration separate us? No. Can foolish, sinful decisions separate us? No. Can fear separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? No. For we are, brothers and sisters, more than conquerors, in Christ Jesus, amen? And because of his grace and his goodness, he gives us joy, he fills us with joy, he gives us joy immeasurable, joy unspeakable, and what we get to do with this, write these three things down, we get to dream. We get to dream about what God is going to do, how God is gonna change lives. We have the opportunity to laugh, to laugh at how God has used our foolishness, our frailties in great ways. Last night was a deeply moving night for your pastor because it's an opportunity for me to look back and see where I started as a pastor and where God has brought me now. It is no joke that we were at Wabansi Community College. I've shared the story. I was a student body president at Wabansi Community College. I got impeached because of bad behavior as student body president there. The last time I was there was the board of directors yelling at me for being a bad student. And now I show back up and what am I a part of this crazy teenage kid? I laugh that God has made me a pastor. I laugh that God has given me a church like this. I laugh at the hilarity with some of you, I might add, that God would use Tim in the way that he has. And when we enjoy God, we laugh and say, God, you use such a foolish person like me to accomplish such great things for you and your kingdom. And we get to enjoy we get to dream, we get to laugh, and we get to enjoy. Listen to me, Village Bible Church. We have the great honor, we have the great blessing to walk and talk and experience the God of the universe who has promised us great and precious promises. And that should make us walk into our offices and in our schools tomorrow with a smile on our face, with a song in our heart, and with the joy of the Lord going before us that the people around us say, it's Monday. How can you be so filled with joy? Because I enter a new week with my God and with him, with me, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's the joy that we have at our disposal. But we've got to trust and obey. 
in order to experience it. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and I thank you for this incredible passage of scripture. I thank you for the joy of an aged mother and father holding in their hands the newborn that was promised to them. It was a hard road to get there, Lord. And boy, did they laugh as they enjoyed the goodness of your provision. And I pray that we as a church might be able to do the same. So Lord, as we close out our time this morning, As we close out in a song, Lord, I pray that the truths of a simple song like trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy, to be joyful in Jesus, is but for us to trust and obey. Give us the strength to be able to do it. And thank you for the grace that will walk us every step of the way. We love you and give you praise for it. In Christ's name, amen.